gift-giving season is here, and for the military history lover on your list, check out my book about the Black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II. Immortal Valor chronicles these timeless heroes' life journeys through all the pain and struggle until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you purchase the book or audiobook, which is available now in stores and online. Welcome to Hamilton at War, our 12-part weekly podcast series that brings to life in vivid historical and emotional detail, Alexander Hamilton's Revolutionary War Service. I'm Robert Child, and I hope you enjoy this latest installment. Hamilton at War, written by Robert Child and narrated by James Gillis. The winter morning dawned clear and bright. Knox, ready to mount his horse outside his farmhouse headquarters, saw a courier riding up the path. The courier arrived with a special invitation. Knox scanned it and returned inside to Hamilton. In his room, Hamilton was up and writing at a secretary, but still deathly pale. I thought you were going to sleep through the war, Captain. Hamilton returned a faint smile. Just catching up with the company paperwork, sir. Knox lifted the courier's note in his hand. I've just gotten an invitation. His Excellency is having a supper with all commanders tomorrow night at Mr. Boggart's tavern. A holiday dinner? Hamilton asked with youthful naivety. Hardly, Knox grunted. No, there are plans afoot. I have seen it in his eyes. What plans? I don't know, but if your constitution is up to it, you will learn them at the same time as I. Hamilton shook his head in confusion as Knox smiled. His Excellency has placed you on the guest list as well, Captain. Hamilton suddenly found new vigour. My strength gains by the moment, sir. Knox, ever the sage, gave him an I-thought-it-might glance. Humphreys used the cover of night to sneak out of Washington's camp into the thick woods. He had grown up in the area, and was headed to a cave he knew on Jericho Hill. As he reached a clearing halfway up the hill, Humphreys saw lean, eighteen-year-old local outlaw, Levi Doan, of the notorious Doan Brothers gang, exit the almost completely hidden cave, and go to relieve himself in the bushes. The Doan brothers were active loyalists and outlaws in the area. Raised as peace-loving Quakers, ironically, they now terrorised the local population in Bucks County. Legend said you never snuck up on a Doan, dead or alive. Inside the cave, stringy-haired, twenty-five-year-old laconic gang leader Moses Doan, possessing the charm of an eel, sat cross-legged and warmed his hands by a fire. Humphreys reached the dome cave entrance and called out, Moses! Moses, you there? It's I, Elb! Click! A cocked flintlock pistol was pressed against the soldier's temple. Levi menaced. Can I help you, soldier? Humphreys strained to see the man holding the gun. Levi, it's I, Albert Humphreys. Albert, 
What in the king's name are you doing out here? Levi called into the cave to Moses and lowered his pistol. Moses, we have a visitor. It's Albert Humphreys. Moses exited the cave. Albert Humphreys, alive and well. How are you, my friend? He then smiled, baring yellow teeth. Cold, starving, and ready to return home, Humphreys replied as he shivered in the rags he wore. Remember I told you, Elbert, that you had joined a losing cause. It is only a matter of time. What brings you to me? I have information useful to a man loyal to the crown. Moses stiffened. Go on. Washington intends to attack the Trenton garrison within days. Don't was quiet a moment, then let out a sigh. That is useful, Elbert. But how do I know that you are telling me the truth? I guard Washington's quarters. I keep my ears open. He is a desperate man. Doan replied, Desperate men commit desperate acts. Then he reached in his wool coat. Here, Doan tossed a bag of shillings at Humphreys. But if this is a lie, Albert, Levi and my other brothers will hunt you down. You will regret this exchange. Humphreys nodded to him nervously and quickly left. Levi joined Moses. Levi, see what you can discover. The British at Brunswick will pay handsomely to know Washington's plan, but we must move with all... Possible speed. Inside a white stucco three-story tavern with green shutters, General Washington had gathered his subordinate commanders. Among them were Knox, Green, and Hamilton, all of whom were seated near the head of a long rustic pine table. Dinner was about to be served. Washington's body servant, Billy Lee, stood beside the table. He'd just finished pouring a glass of Madeira for His Excellency. Washington raised his glass. Gentlemen, in the spirit of the season, may I offer a toast? The men hoisted their glasses. May God grant us every blessing in the glorious endeavor upon which we are about to embark. The men turned and looked to one another as Washington, who loved a sense of theatre, continued, Gentlemen, we will attack the Hessian garrison at Trenton Christmas night with every able man and every ounce of strength we possess. Washington threw his Madeira back, while the men held their glasses in the air a moment, then gulped. Hugh Mercer, round-faced, fifty years old, one of Washington's trusted friends, spoke up, in his Scottish brogue. Sir, the chances of success. The men are starved, half frozen and in ill health. Shouldn't we wait to mount a campaign? Murmurs of agreement filtered down the table as men chattered like hens about the lack of time for preparations and the shortage of munitions. Washington remained silent, watching them. And so did Hamilton. Washington noticed Hamilton was not joining in with the others. How about you, Captain Hamilton? It appears you have no complaint. None, Your Excellency. 
Hamilton responded in a voice loud enough to rise above the din. The other men stopped talking long enough to stare at the young artilleryman. It's a bold plan, sir, but quite necessary. The men need the supplies at Trenton, and many very soon intend to leave us upon expiration of their enlistments. With a victory, perhaps they might be persuaded to stay, and others might be persuaded to join. Washington nodded affirmatively, and pointed at Hamilton. My thinking, precisely. The other men now glared at Hamilton, who had one-upped them, as Washington continued. Gentlemen, I have no illusions of the difficulties we face, but the benefits far outweigh the risks. I have no doubt, but that General Howe will still make an attempt upon Philadelphia this winter. The officers grumbled in agreement. No army, I believe, ever had a greater choice of difficulties, and less means to extricate themselves from them. However, under a full persuasion of the justice of our cause, I cannot entertain that we will be anything other than victorious. The men, now fully chastened, looked to one another. Knox cleared his throat. And so there it is then, General. As always, we all remain humbly at your service. Hoots and cheers began outside in the surrounding camp. Two thousand proud Continental troops were streaming into the encampment, lifted by the cheers of their fellow soldiers-in-arms. Inside the tavern, commanders rushed to the window, with Washington bringing up the rear. Hamilton, quick to the window, turned, "'It's General Lee's men!' "'And Sullivan is leading them,' Mercer added. New Hampshire-born, General John Sullivan, 36, just released in a prisoner exchange, proudly rode ahead of the American troops, and acknowledged, with a nod, the cheers in camp. Back inside, Washington looked to the heavens a moment, then smiled, grateful for this timely arrival of reinforcements. Levi, out of breath, called out from the darkness as he reached the hidden dome cave. Moses! Moses! Levi entered the cave and saw Moses by the fire. It's all true! Albert was right. There's not a boat to be had for sixty miles up nor downriver. They're collected near Knoll's Cove and heavily guarded. The troops have been packing gear and they appear ready to move. Moses jumped up quickly and paced. This is madness! Pure madness. I must get to Rowell. In Taylorsville, Pennsylvania, snow fell against a low, angry sky as winds whipped through the bending pines. A full-blown northeaster had descended on Washington's men, just in time for the crossing. Hamilton, marching with his company, now fewer than thirty men, was attached to Lord Stirling's brigade. He reached the crest of a hill on the Newtown Road after midnight with his two cannons. He then surveyed the expanse of men crossing to the Jersey side on this Christmas night. This was an army of one purpose. Twenty-five hundred soldiers filed past a two-story stone tavern known as McConkie's Ferry and down into long barges, Durham boats and ferries. The men were under orders not to speak. The only sounds were the creaks of oars, the howling gale, and Knox's continuous cursing. 
At the ice-encrusted dock, seasoned Massachusetts seaman Colonel John Glover, 44, directed the embarkation. He shouted, "'Keep it moving, men! Step to the front! Tighten in! Tighten in!' Six miles ahead of them, across the river, and down Pennington Road, a lone horseman kicked up snow. Moses Doan, disguised as a farmer, rode headlong into the blinding storm. He reached the edge of the village, but was stopped by Hessian pickets at the secured perimeter a half-mile from Trenton. His mission was to see the hardened 51-year-old Hessian commander, Colonel Johann Rahl. The first picket he encountered raised his hand. Halt! Stadiergeschäft! Halt! State your business! Moses, out of breath, said, I must see Colonel Rahl. You're all in grave danger. Nein, Sie können ihn nicht sehen. No, you cannot see him. Moses held up his hand, mimicking an act of writing on paper. This is important. Let me write a note. The picket, one of the few in the regiment who was literate, reached in his pocket for a small book, tore a page, and handed it to Doan with a crude pencil. Doan scribbled a few quick words. The picket took it back and read the note. Washington is coming on you down the river. He will be here afore long. Doan. The Hessian picket turned to his fellow guard and handed the note off. Bring Sirad here, Zafort. Bring Mr. Rowell immediately. Inside the stately two-storey clapboard colonial home with a low picket fence that Colonel Rowell had made his headquarters, the Hessian commander played cards with fellow officers. The Hessian picket, with Doan's note, arrived. Colonel, eine wichtige Nachricht von einem örtlichen Mann. Colonel, an important message from a local man. Rahl took the note but didn't look at it, and replied, Ich werde drauf später schauen. I'll look at that later. He then put the note in his vest pocket, where it remained. On Pennington Road, General Green led his column down the frozen, rutted path. The army's shoes and bare feet crunched through the snow. It was nearly dawn, and they were hours behind schedule. The artillery lumbered forward as the snow continued to swirl. Green decided to ride forward in the line. He came upon Hamilton and his two guns, and tipped his hat. Hamilton nodded, serious, ready for the fight. Snow still whirled, but the sky had lighted as dawn grew near. In these woods outside Trenton, Washington readied his men for battle. The order had been given, and the army was a sea of fixed bayonets. The men marched at a steady pace, all eyes focused forward. General Greene's forces now arrived just to Washington's left. Washington had seized high ground overlooking King and Queen Streets, an ideal spot to place his artillery. Washington, looking across at his force, unsheathed his green-dyed, ivory-handled sword. Charge, bayonets! His troops elongated their stride into an all-out run, snapping low branches and kicking up snow. This strange movement and sound in the woods attracted the attention of Hessian pickets on patrol. Stunned and momentarily frozen at the sight of the masses of men emerging from the woods, they turned and shouted alarm, Da fiend! Da fiend! 
on the high ground at the edge of town. Knox had his guns loaded and ready. He nodded to his men, who had the matches lit. Let's wake up the rest of the bastards. Get fire! All turned to panic. Hessians in battle dress bolted into the street and were shot down. A young Hessian officer, sword drawn, mounted a horse to rally his men. To no avail, he shouted, Form Lanier! Form Lanier! Form lines! Form lines! Near King Street, Hamilton wheeled his six-pounders into place. His men had them loaded quickly. They shoved canister down the barrel, which was a tin can filled with iron balls. A short distance away from the guns, a group of Hessians clawed their way through the blinding white smoke, unaware of Hamilton's cannons, pointed directly at them. Hamilton gave the deadly order. Give fire! Bodies disappeared in a grey cloud that turned red. Washington, on horseback on the ridge, continued to direct his men into battle. Inside his headquarters, Raoul dressed for battle in shock and anger. He yelled to his aides, Fee! Fee! How? How? Exiting the home, Raoul quickly mounted his horse and galloped, sword drawn, towards his troops. Meine Tapferen Soldaten! Verschrift! My brave soldiers! Forward! Eyeing the well-dressed German officer, a Continental raised his musket, followed Raoul, and pulled the trigger. Raoul fell from his horse, severely wounded and near death. In a nearby clearing, Hessians tried to reform their lines. Instantly, Washington's men, muskets levelled, surrounded them on all sides. The cornered Hessians dropped their guns and raised their arms in surrender. Back on King Street, Hamilton's cannons were loaded and ready to fire again. Hessians had begun exiting doorways, waving white cloths. They stepped over the strewn body parts of their fallen comrades, shouting, Wir übergeben! Wir übergeben! We surrender! We surrender! Hamilton motioned to his artillery company to extinguish their torches. He patted the closest cannon, then nodded to his men. On the crest of the ridge on the edge of town, Washington, on horseback, called down to Colonel Knox. It is a glorious day for our country, Henry! Glorious! Later, Hamilton, conspicuous with five of his men, escorted thirty Hessian prisoners past Washington's position. He ordered, Eyes left! Hamilton's men turned their eyes in Washington's direction, as Hamilton couldn't hold back a giddy, victorious battle smile. Washington saluted Hamilton's men, then looked to the young captain and returned a smile. A small American victory had been achieved, but one which would send shockwaves across an ocean. Fresh off the victory at Trenton, Washington boldly decided to continue on to Princeton, New Jersey, a British stronghold. The College of New Jersey, which changed its name to Princeton in 1896, located within the town, was a school Hamilton knew well. His patrons in the West Indies had raised a scholarship for his attendance at this exact institution. As the young artillery commander headed with his battery towards the main college building, Nassau Hall, he recalled a letter he had received from the trustees of the college five years earlier, after his entrance exam with Dr. Witherspoon. One of the few outright rejections he had received in his life, he could recall the letter word for word. Master Hamilton, it is evident that you are fully prepared to enter college. 
and you certainly would honour any seminary at which you would wish to be educated. It is, however, with profound regret that your request to enter, with the understanding that you may advance from class to class with as much rapidity as your exertions allow, cannot be complied with. It is contrary to the usage of the college and the wishes of the trustees. Upon arrival with his two-cannon battery on campus, Hamilton took dead aim upon Nassau Hall. Two hundred British had fled the main battle and sought refuge in the brownstone edifice. After his third cannon shot sailed through a window and reportedly destroyed a painting of the king, the British began to wave the white flag. As Hamilton watched his fellow soldiers secure the British prisoners, he turned to his trusted right-hand man and simply said, Thompson, let it be known, I finally entered Princeton. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Robert Child, and be with us next week for another exciting installment of Hamilton at War, only on Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.